has a Cornish lighthouse got to do with the woman who died at the cottage, Carr Cox. That's one of the weird things about this investigation of ours. How connections are made between what are apparently completely unrelated things. Hang on a minute, isn't that what conspiracy theorists do? Well, in this particular case, there is a connection. It comes up while we're out on the road hoping to turn up some more clues about Carr's death. Graham points out a local landmark. So we're coming off the moors now down towards um, that St Ives Bay, so we're heading down towards St Ives Town. But from the top here you can see for miles and miles and miles all the way over to St Agnes Beacon and beyond. Um, oh, and that island there... Can you see that island with the, yeah, with the, yeah, lighthouse, with the lighthouse on it? There's a lovely, beautiful little white lighthouse. That's called Goodrevy Island. And the story is that Virginia Woolf's novel To the Lighthouse um, was, was written with that lighthouse, that particular lighthouse in mind. Christmas, 1926 and Virginia Woolf is still working on her novel, To the Lighthouse. She's here, where we are now, near Zenner. Up there on the moor is the cottage. And here, across the road, a big house. This is where Virginia Woolf is staying. She's come down from London to stay here at Eagle's Nest and visit the friend she's known since university days, Carr Cox. And Carr became part of Virginia Woolf's literary endeavours. In her first novel, Night and Day, one of the main characters is called Mary Datchett, a suffragette. Literary academics say this character was inspired by Carr Cox. So in life, Carr becomes part of a story written by one of the great 20th century novelists. But in death, she's become part of a very different and sinister story. In this episode, we'll shed light on the remarkable life of Carr Cox. And we track down someone who knows how Carr met her death on that dark night. It's also a key moment for Graham because he finally confronts his childhood ghosts in the company of his mother when they discuss the death of his brother. I should say now, before you listen to this episode, that it's a heartbreaking encounter. This is episode four of One Dark Night. So here we are in Red Ruth at the County Archives. Now this place looks as if it's new. I mean, it's yeah, amazing. It's brand new. Well, it's not brand new, I don't think, but it's pretty new. It's called Crescent Kerno, and uh, it's got pretty much all the archives for the county 
and the building itself yeah with its purpose built roofs large windows and restored yep. stone just looks absolutely amazing yeah it's got an exhibition centre as well it's got um, uh, the first mystery play ever produced in these islands uh, the Cornish Ordinalia and uh, the original manuscript, manuscript is at the moment so so far today Graham hasn't mentioned whether he spoke to his mum about the death of his brother Paul I'm going to wait until he wants to talk about it Meanwhile, we've got work to do. We want to discover more about the woman who died at the cottage, Carr Cox, who was also known as Catherine Arnold Forster. I booked us a session to look through the newspaper archives. Oh, brilliant. Great idea. So hopefully we'll be able to look up the dates that we think we've got yeah. and um, see what the newspaper reports say. OK. So... Um, Shh, keep your voice down. <laughs> what do you want? More libraries. When do you want them? Now. <laughs> okay. Um, right. You're quite right. Very good. Um, May 23rd. What was the date? Okay. Um, so it was that week. So um, it's going to be. Else, it? Well, it's going to be sometime. Back in 1938, what were journalists Um, saying about her death? Were they onto a story? And And what were they saying about any possible police investigation? Oh, was it weekly? A bi-weekly edition. So try the next edition then, after. Maybe. We begin our trawl through the newspapers from 1938. I wonder if Graham is hoping to come across lurid headlines screaming black magic and devil worship in Zena. That's all adverts there. Stop acute indigestion. Oh, that's Palm Olivat, the risque one. Ah. Wow, it does look very risque for a 1930s paper. And it's, it is page three there. Oh, as we search the pages looking for news about Carcox, we stumble on another story which has a connection with the cottage. One of the other people that appears in Paul Newman's account is someone who supposedly went mad, a man called Vaughan. Someone with his name appears in one of the newspaper reports. No, I oh, don't. Oh, here we are. Here, here. There's something. Maybe. OK. Hang on, just yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Motor car, obs- ob- motor car obstruction. Zoom in. Yeah, yeah. Wait. Vaughan. Vaughan, yeah. Of Zena. That's the man. Pleaded yeah. guilty to causing, causing an obstruction by leaving his car at Tr- Trigana Place. So he's been prosecuted. Yeah. PC Jones saw it. Woohoo. December the 15th. At 2.30pm, he was on duty near the post office corner where he saw a stationary car in Tregenna Place. Caused much congestion of traffic and it was... What's that? Unattended. Unattended until 3.50pm when the defendant arrived and the bench imposed a fine of five shillings. Fair amount of money. So he was there then. So that shows that... He was there. Yeah, and this was March... 1938 when he was prosecuted so that clearly places him there mm-hmm. uh, it would suggest that he was there. if the claim is that he was there at that period of time then that would concur with that 
So this report of a traffic prosecution in March 1938 mm. seems good evidence that the Vaughans were in Zena around the time the story says they were. I suppose there might have been um, an autopsy. It's not long before we find another news report, the one we've been looking for. I think there is another page after this. I think there it's is. not on this page. I can't see anything there, can you? No. Oh, yeah, this is Arnold Foster's death. Have you found it? Yeah. So I think it must be down here. Mrs Arnold Foster's death, Forster's death, was a great shock to her friends and a severe loss to the public. She and her husband had lived in West Cornwall for nearly 20 years. The distinguished association with large affairs did not prevent them from doing much local service. They identified themselves with various Cornish movements, particularly the work of education and the Council for the Preservation of Rural England. In the latter, Mrs. Arnold Foster was especially effective. Right. Well, granddaughter of a former vicar of Senna. So, a pretty straightforward death notice. <laughs> Except for the last... The fact that she and her husband had taken a very active part in left-wing politics made no difference whatsoever to their popularity among all parties. Oh, sign of the times, I guess. And these two. So, okay. that's it. OK. Well, so no kind of... I'm surprised, because that almost feels like it starts in the middle of a, an article, doesn't it? But... How's it possible, how's it possible, considering who she was, that she was this, I mean, certainly locally really well-known, nationally actually really well-known, incredibly prominent person, so, and given what we know has happened in that cottage, how's it possible for her to die in that way with no real, you know, investigation taking place? You are making a bit of assumption here, though, aren't you? Because, I mean, obviously what's in that particular death notice, what's been reported in the yeah. paper will be the official story. That doesn't necessarily mean that the official story's not correct. There's something else we know, other things we know about Crowley, OK? He had friends in high places. He, there's rumours that he worked for MI5. How difficult would it be for someone like that to hush up something like this at that time in rural Cornwall? You know, a couple of bobbies locally. This is all still... Still supposition, isn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's supposition, but but it's possible. So, hey, let's, you know, or you're going to think, you'll think one way, I'm going to think another, because that's how we are, and <laughs> that's how we roll. OK, but one thing's for sure, OK, what's awful and tragic is that this 51-year-old woman with a lot of life to live and a son and a husband that she loved just was no more. Suddenly at 51, without any kind of notice, you know, the thing just happens. If you have the choice between yeah. it happening unexpected 
yeah. very quickly or you had some notice so you could have a chance to maybe talk to people you wanted to talk to which one would you go for? I think I'd probably go for um, some notice although I think that would be pretty horrible to know that you're on your way but I think the opportunity to say goodbye to people would be a fine thing like the whole thing with Carl Cox you know no opportunity whatsoever to say any of that the kind of instantaneous know nothing about it you would forego that for the opportunity to I think so I mean I think it'd be better for you if you're the person dying me if I'm the person dying it's better to sort of just bang gone know nothing about it it's all over but I think it's pretty mean for everybody who's left behind that sudden that you suddenly disappear with no opportunity to to say anything before people leave now and I wouldn't inflict that on other people what about you? well I remember when my father died relatively suddenly it wasn't mm-hmm. instantaneous but it did mean that he didn't have an opportunity to perhaps if he wanted to say whatever he wanted to say and maybe um, talk about things and I kind of uh, from a selfish point of view thought well actually would have been quite good to be able to kind of talk through some stuff Um, and knowing that you know this is the kind of last opportunity so that opportunity was never there no and so in that respect I you know I kind of think there's some value in that really having that kind of opportunity so since we're all going to die at some point maybe we should just live our lives like that that whatever we want to say to people we need to say to them now if you just want to say to people that you love them and uh, you know and that your life has been enriched by them then say it now yeah no I can see the argument for that and also and the, the box with all that cash is hidden here well precisely I mean, there's always an opportunity um, in other ways, I suppose, after you've passed passed on, if you can find the right clairvoyant medium or whatever. You can always pass it on that way. There there was a a trend of people making videos to be played... After their death. After their death. I think in some cases it was where they wanted to pass a message on to grandchildren that were too young to understand, perhaps. But... That's I don't know. I mean, uh, if you if you could said well, you know you can record something now which will be played to future generations, your descendants. Would you would you do that? I don't think I'd know what to say. We could do a podcast message to our descendants. That's a great idea. What a great idea! Yeah, you're about to die. You've got three hours. What would you say to those left behind? Yeah, perhaps those you haven't even met yet. Here's yeah. your opportunity. Yeah. My great granny Graham, uh, so the story goes, she was on her deathbed some time ago now, probably 40 years ago, something like that, perhaps even more, 50 years ago. And the family had collected downstairs in the parlour. Um, and she was taking a long time about dying, was Granny Graham. And she said, um, and the family that collected started 
having a little bit of a chat about who was going to get what when Granny had gone. She left me that sideboard. Uh, no, she didn't. She left me that sideboard, and it turned into this huge row. And people, I'm really a proper full-on row about who was going to get what. And uh, then suddenly there was this voice from upstairs. I can hear you buggers down there. It's Granny Graham. And she lives another ten years out of spite. <laughs> That's the kind of deathbed I'd like to have. <laughs> Now that we've confirmed some of the details of Carl's death, I say to Graham, why don't we visit her grave in Zenner Churchyard? On the way, it gives him an opportunity to deliver an impromptu lesson in pronouncing Cornish place names. In the Cornish language, the, the first syllable is often a tree or a pen or a pole, which is, um, which is kind of is not the name of the place, it's the, it's, it's the kind of place it is. So the emphasis in, in the word is the important part? Yeah, so Penzance, although New Yorkshire people do say Penzance, but it isn't, it's Penzance. Any other and names that ives, get wrong? St Ives or St Ear, as the, as the Cornish is, it's Ear in, in Cornish. And now here we go into the outskirts of St Ives. St Ives proper. St Ives proper. <laughs> Nobody lives in St Ives. <laughs> I just noticed we're driving through St Ives and it's completely empty. There's no one on the streets. No one lives here. There's no one here. No, it, it used to, people did used to live here, but now it's a virtual town for, um, for tourists alone to enjoy. He said bitterly. <laughs> exactly. I was hoping for something somewhat profound today. You just said some roads are longer than they seem. <laughs> is that the first line of something? <laughs> it probably is, yeah. We should think of what comes after it. So how would it start? Would it kind of go, some roads are longer than they seem? Yeah, go on, keep going. Some roads are shorter than they are. Are they near or are they far? Yeah, we're here. We're here already. Yeah. We thought we were beginning to solve parts of this mystery, but now we come face to face with something else that just seems inexplicable. So here we are now, back at uh, Zena Churchyard, the beautiful village of Zena, and, and we are looking for Carl Cox's grave. Ian, I've searched high and low, and you, have you had any luck? No, well, I well, haven't well. been able surprise, to. Surprise, surprise, I haven't been able to find it, no. 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 So not only has whatever happened at that cottage been hushed up, there is now no evidence of this poor woman's grave either. They've got rid of that. But the 
absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Very so good, very good. Yeah, yes. Well, it's not my quote. It's oh. attributed to the um, astronomer royal, actually, Martin Rees. Just because we can't find the grave no, sure. doesn't mean that we can conclude there's a cover-up. No, I agree with that. But there are, there are a number of things now, aren't there, that are beginning to pile up, pile up of absences where there ought to be something. When things should be there and they're not, you wonder what's happened to get rid of them. We are still stuck with having to have a burden of proof if this is to be convincing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But hey, interesting. I have been looking for it for years and I can't find it. That grave has disappeared. That's Jane Winter, who's written and researched a biography of Carr Cox and her husband, William Arnold Forster. We've arranged a chat with her online. ...and uh, listen to her opinion. Um, so they had a very very strong relationship. Very, very strong. Loving. I would say joined, joined at the hip, really, right. as a couple. Mm. Um, and that was so unusual for the time. We're about to hear some remarkable details about Carr's life and the circumstances surrounding her death. Carr is buried in the churchyard at St. Sonara's church in Zenon. Well, we went looking for it. A local couple have mapped the graves in the graveyard. Um, And I've also made inquiries in Truro uh, where they keep the records um, and they have told me uh, where to find the graves of people who were buried at around the same time because quite likely they would be at roughly the same place mm. uh, but there's no sign of cars and Will's grave. It's very strange uh, and there was no memorial if, there then? Yes, no it's as if, no, it's as if they've disappeared off the face of the earth Mm. Uh, which is why I wrote the biography because I wanted to bring them back to life as it were there's a we went to the um, local records office in 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 Red Roof and looked up some newspaper reports of um, of Carr's death and they they are glowing uh, she was a very, very kind woman. Mm. You know, local people would come to her with their troubles. They would come to her for um, to borrow some sugar or some salt. Yeah. In return, they would give her, say, a pot of honey or some clotted cream. That was how she was seen by people. She was seen as somebody to come to when you needed something. Uh, and she was always generous and helpful, kind. And both she and Will um, not only treated each other as equals, but they treated everybody they met as an equal. And anybody was welcome at their house. And she um, was. She went to university, I, I believe, at Newnham College, which was one of the two, two colleges in Cambridge that accepted women. Mm. 
Carl went there to, to read history hmm. in 1906. And is that where she met Will? No, it's where she met Rupert Brooke. Ah. I don't think you could really say they ever had a romance. Uh, what they had was a sexual relationship. And it was all about the pursuit. Yeah. And he pursued poor Carl into the ground to the point where she did fall genuinely in love with him. Uh, and of course, the minute that happened, Rupert lost interest. Mm, okay. But I think when she met Will, she did genuinely fall in love with him. Mm. And uh, she was certainly the love of Will's life. Yes. Beyond absolute any shadow of doubt. They loved Eagle's Nest and it was their home, but they didn't hesitate to use it. So uh, there would be whisk drives to raise money for the Labour Party, for the local church hall, mm -hmm. uh, for the local school, uh, for the local nursing association. So they integrated themselves very much into the, the local seen um, and I think they were very well known not only locally but also nationally I mean Will's name was was never out of the newspaper uh, Mr. Arnold Forster as he was known yes uh, it, nobody had to explain who he was so he was uh, very very well known in his time they sound like they're absolutely remarkably modern liberal couple I mean if they, they would they, they would fit in very well in our times wouldn't they they would and and they would be I think exactly the same yes uh, today as they were then yeah. why is it do you think we don't know more of them now part of the answer is that there are many people in the world who do good who are simply forgotten Unfortunately, uh, Carr is remembered as a character in another story which concerns her death. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Jane? Let's forget the story mm -hmm. and okay. let's just talk about what her happened. Her death, yes. A little boy knocked on her door and said that his mother was a in hysterics uh, in a cottage just up the hill on the other side of the valley mm -hmm. from Eagle's Nest um, because she had heard noises in the night and she thought it was some kind of poltergeist or mm -hmm. some sort of you know, evil spirit. And Carr, who was was concerned, particularly since a child was involved, offered to go and spend the night in the house 
because she knew, as indeed every local person knew, that those strange knockings that, that could be heard in the night were actually either foxes or badgers. She wasn't very well, and because she had extremely high blood pressure. And in those days, there was no treatment for hypertension. Um, and Will was and away. She didn't tell Will that she wasn't well, because Will was a terrible fusser. Mm-hmm. He would get very worried, and he would not have gone away if he'd known that she was ill. Uh, so even though she was tired and not feeling terribly well, she trundled off to their house, which meant going down one side of the valley and up the other. Mm. Not the best idea for somebody with very high blood pressure. Uh, and she settled herself in an armchair because there was no spare bed to spend the night there and, you know, to calm this woman's fears. She suffered a massive stroke in her sleep and they found her dead. I mean, local newspaper reports suggested that her death was being looked into by the chief constable. I can find no evidence for that. No. Uh, there was never a coroner's inquest, which there would have been had there been any question about her death. Uh, and her death was certified by her own GP. I'm absolutely convinced yes. that the version that I've just given is, is accurate. It's the correct one. So there you have it. Well, Obviously, Newman got it wrong. Because Jane Winter says he did. Yeah, but clearly there are big holes that she spotted in his story. Hmm. And in a way, she goes for the kind of prosaic element to all this. Yeah. Not a great story, but in a way that's what often the truth is. The truth isn't some big drama. Well, it is quite a big drama, even the way she tells it. But I kind of think... <sighs> the problem is there's... there's uh, OK, there's no, there's not a lot of evidence, actually, for the Newman story. But there actually isn't an awful lot of evidence either for the Jane Winter version of events. It's, you know, it's... Uh, well, this is probably what happened, but we don't really know. I mean, you'll know when time has elapsed, it becomes increasingly difficult to get evidence and we're looking at something which is many many years ago and clearly you can only get probably a partial view with the evidence right the thing is that there are two versions of a story Uh, one of those stories may be correct aspects of both of those stories may be correct but 
we're in a kind of position where, as you say, a long time, this offence happened a long time ago. Are we ever going to be able to find any evidence to... So you seem to have bought into this idea because it always keeps the door open. Aha, we haven't actually found the, the killer piece of evidence, but that means that it may be out there. Yeah, and what's wrong with that? Because you seem to have bought into the idea that let's just go with Jane Winter's thing because that must be the truth because there can't possibly be anything extraordinary in this story. So is, that, is, the, is this really about the cottage then? I mean, if you're looking for something extraordinary, maybe, I don't know, to, you know, making contact with the other side, is this really just a kind of personal thing yeah, that we're talking can't about? can't you make it really personal, Ian? I've been a right old go, aren't you now? Oh, God. Yeah, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is personal. Everything's personal to some extent, isn't it? about to find out how personal this is for Graham. He's finally had that conversation with his mum about his brother Paul and how he died. And he's given me the recording of the conversation he had when he sat down at the kitchen table with his mum Marlene and his sister Sue. I'm expecting this to be a very emotional conversation so it's worth saying now that some of you may find it upsetting. I mean, my parents died when I was young, but then, but your own child, it's, it's so difficult, you know. Yeah. Mm. But uh, it's just the worst thing that's ever, ever happened in my life. He was such a durable boy. I mean, he was your mate, Graham. He was very close. Mm. We were very close, yeah, weren't we, were. as children? Yeah, Yeah. I all know. the photographs look like we were Oh, very yes. Close. Oh, and you kissed him <laughs> and all in that photograph. And nobody asked you to. <laughs> no, you just kissed him. You loved him. Yeah. And he was a dear little boy. And um, good as gold, you know. When Graham was three and a half, Paul was two and a half. Sid said, that's my husband, he said, take the boys out for a bit of walk. So anyway, he took them up to the village. And then on the way down, he called in and I said, well, Paul ought to go for his nap. And he said, oh, I'm only going down Jean's a minute. Let's go down there and see Auntie Jean and then I'll bring them back. Yeah. Jean is my sister. And um, so I was hanging out the washing and Jean's neighbour one for Jenkin came up and came out in the garden to me. Yeah. And just said, um, you have to come down to Jean's. The little boy has had an accident. Jean was out in her, what we call the back kitchen, and doing her washing. She had a bucket of water from the boiler. Hot water. Yeah. yeah. From the boiler that she just boiled the clothes, and he fell back into it. Course he was taken to Bedrooth Hospital and um, I remember Sid and I went in in the afternoon on the Marigold bus yeah. 
I said, do you think he's going to die? Sid said, no, I hope not. We went there and um, in those days you couldn't stay in the hospital with them. No. And um, there was a woman there, a nurse, Gladys Trezitter. She said to me, give him something of yours. I gave him a purse. Yeah. And um, I still got the purse home now. But they said that um, you would have to be flown to the French Hospital in Bristol. Was that because they didn't have a specialist? No, they burns. didn't have the no. things to do, what you see. And only one of us could go in the helicopter with him. So, of course, Sid went. So I was going up to Bristol. Somebody was going to take me up there. And um, I was upstairs getting my clothes. When I looked down, Ian Helm was down the bottom of the stairs. Marking, he said, I'm so sorry. Of course, I knew what he meant. Mr. Hooper was out in the car. Ian couldn't come down on his own. He said, I couldn't face you on my own. The actual funeral, I mean, you can imagine, the place was crowded. Mm. And when we walked up the churchyard, everybody was up the sides, you know. Yeah, so the whole village turned yeah, out. Yeah, all the village turned out, you know. Yeah. And did that yeah. feel really supportive? Well, yes, it did. It did. And people came <laughs> back to just to our place. And, you know, and then, like, the family and all. And then... Um, so the yeah. village was really close and the well, family was really everybody close. Everybody knew us, you know. Yeah. Everybody knew us and, you know, the chapel and all that, you know, everybody. It was... I still got all the letters out now. And for you, you know, you had it, Graham. You went through it. You yeah. know, you knew what was going on. You were three and a half. Um, were you aware that when I was young, I was having some very strange experiences? No. 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 So that yeah. I would see ghosts and spirits and no. faces. And you never knew that. I no. didn't think you ever did. Well, when you were home, you then? When I was home, yeah. yeah. Isn't it funny? We've never talked about that. Got no. to this age and never no. told you that. No. Again, I protect you, see, I suppose. Me. Like we've always been told we've got to protect oh. mum from these things. Yeah, yeah. see, I spoke to <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Mm. And I never talked to you about yeah. that. No. <clears throat> no. So I'm. I know part... you were nervous. I know you were nervous. Mm. They used to call down a lot when you went to bed. and. Yeah. Sort of when running. I was shouting down as a child. Yeah, you were seeing something. Why didn't you say then? I don't know. No. Well, I suppose because maybe I felt foolish. Maybe I yeah. was frightened. To yeah. Say. Yeah. And mm. you were probably mm. aware of what mum and dad had it's been that, through, yeah. and that if you're saying mm. that you're seeing things, maybe yes. and that very strange. It wouldn't be appropriate. Right? Yeah. yeah, that is strange. I wonder how you'd have felt at the time if I told you. I would have been worried what I was doing, yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And then I find myself at this point in my life, all these years later, still yeah. wondering what that was. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strange, yeah. Strange. Yeah. 
what do you think happened to Paul after his death? I think it's his memories that he's left behind. I mean, he was only living for two and a half years, but lovely memories of him, yeah. of your children, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's the memories they leave behind. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I do question it, really. So you're not sure now that you believe that when we die, we no. go on to another place? No, I am not sure about that at all. I should be, but I, I'm not. No. Because I can't see where we all go. No. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, no. I can't see where we all go. I think, well, it is your soul, isn't it? Your body's gone, but perhaps your soul is still... But I remember you when you were younger saying mm. that you were always looking forward to being reunited with Paul. Did I say that? After you died, yeah. And I with your parents that. too, yeah. and meeting mm. them and knowing them. Yeah. Has that yeah. changed then, do you think? I suppose it has with me as I got older. Yeah, I, I don't know. I do question it. Yeah. Mm. We've talked to a few people in the course of this podcast mm. who will say that... Um, that they can connect with people who have mm. passed on, mm. you know. Mm. What do you think of that? I've never had that experience myself, and I don't know, I doubt it, really. Yeah. Mm. Jean mm. took a lot of comfort from that. Yeah, Jean might have done. Of course, Jean was in a terrible, terrible state, a terrible state. I mean, she really did suffer and grieve terribly. Because she loved you. She loved the both of you. Of course. Yeah. And, and felt she felt so guilty. Yeah. And Derek, when he was dying, he was he said, um, Jean and I were there, you know, with him. He said, um, what shall I say to Paul? Oh, did, did he? Mm-hmm. Mm. And Jean said, tell him I'm sorry. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yeah. Did you talk about it? No, not a lot after. Because of Jean. Because of Jean. I always used to pretend that Jean, I was all right. Yeah. But I've cried. Not not my own, you know. Mine, I bet I don't go a day when I don't think about him. No. No. Mm. I don't go a day when I don't think of something about him, Mm. you know. Mm. And I suppose I always will. Mm. But, well, I hope I do, you know. That's right. Hello, this is Graham. Sorry I can't pick up. Please leave a message. Hi Graham, it's Ian. I've tried you a couple of times and I'll try you again. I realise Crowley and all that. It's not what this is about for you anymore, is it? This podcast, not really. I didn't know that when we started out. And... 
I don't think you did either. Well, not consciously, anyway. But it turned into you looking for answers to your stuff. And that's fine. But you've gone quiet. So, I'm worried about you. Give me a call, will you? I hope you're okay. Although we're making some progress, new questions keep cropping up. How is it that the grave of Carr Cox seems to have disappeared? And remember, it's not just us that's trying to find it. If you have an alternative reason that could possibly explain why it's no longer there, then do let us know. Now, we didn't manage to find these at the county archives, but Jane Winter in her interview said that local newspaper reports said Carr's death was being looked into by the chief constable. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this happened. Well, Carr's family had influential friends, so could it have been hushed up? Or is this just another conspiracy theory that feeds the myth that paranormal events are being covered up? We'd love to hear your theories or thoughts, so do let me and Graham know. You can find us on social media with the handle One Dark Podcast. Next time, we are going to hear the whole story of what happened at the cottage on the night in question from someone who was there. Do join us then.